It is a privilege to return to Psalm 132 in our series, Psalms of Ascents, Going Home, or as I stated it from the beginning, Longing for God in the Psalms of Ascents. This whole series is about going home. But sometimes the question that we have is, do we have a home to go to? In, in the, the biblical sense, home is where God is. And as the pilgrims, before the time of Christ, were heading back to Jerusalem, they had many times cause to wonder, is Jerusalem still our home? Or has God abandoned us in this dark hour? God's pilgrim people in the Old Testament experienced many years when no heir of David sat on the throne. Indeed, foreign rulers ruled over Jerusalem. While they sat in exile, they wondered, would God ever take us back to the land? They sat as slaves in Babylon and in Assyria, weeping over the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Would God remain faithful to his promises? Would God restore his people to the land that expelled them? Even more violently put in the biblical words, that vomited them out. Would they have a home in Zion? And so whether in the days of the exile or the the post-exile when God's people now scattered throughout the nations could return three times a year to worship God at his temple or as they're gathering to rebuild the temple, they're wondering, has God abandoned us? And they're praying to the Lord, do not turn your face away from us. And in the fullness of biblical revelation in the New Testament, we see so many things that we will unpack in Psalm 132, fulfilled in Jesus. But at the same time, while we're between Jesus' first and second coming, it can be very easy, whether as a church or whether as individuals or families, to ask, has God abandoned me? Has he abandoned us? Think of the suffering church throughout the world. When people are burning your church down or slandering your name in the press or killing your children, think how easy it could be to ask, has God abandoned me? And those have been very real experiences of God's people from the cross to the present day. Even Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Speaking the words of Psalm 22, even our Lord experienced the temporary abandonment of the Father. So I think we can ask the same question as these pilgrims. We're now deep into the Psalms of Ascent. This is the 13th Psalm. We have two more to go. 
And deep into this journey back home, the question is, has God abandoned his people? And the answer is an emphatic no. The Lord has chosen Zion. That's what this text is all about. And we're going to unpack it in the sense of how the Old Testament saints would have understood it and then unpack it in the sense of how the New Testament has shown us its true and spiritual realities. The Lord has chosen Zion, and there he shall dwell forever. But Psalm 132 is a bit of an enigma, and it, and it gave me uh, quite a hard time in the pastoral study this week. Uh, commentators struggle to know exactly what is the purpose of this psalm within the Psalms of Ascents. And for, for one, it is much longer than any of the other psalms. As you know, we've been singing the Psalms of Ascents, and most of them are very short Uh, We sing it in three parts. It's a much longer psalm. But it's also an enigma in the sense of what was the purpose of this psalm originally? Was it for Solomon's temple dedication? Was it written or or collected much later in the exilic or post-exilic period when people are wondering where where is God when there's no heir of David sitting on the throne? And oftentimes that context helps us know the meaning of the text. And we're missing a lot of that in this text. So Psalm 132 comes as a bit of an enigma. And uh, scholars have wrestled with it, and I wrestled with it a lot this, this week. We've sung this psalm, I think, for two years in our family worship. And and uh, it still gave me a good and hard time as I was working through it this week. But I think the Lord has helped me to um, collect something meaningful and true to say to you today. And you can judge that for yourself. But I think we come in a day when Christianity is not in vogue. It's not popular. It's hated in most places. And where... The work of the Lord often appears very small, like a mustard seed. And we too need to be reminded that God has not abandoned us. He is with us. And he is with us forever. So we're going to look at this text this morning in three parts. We're going to first look at what the text says. Just on the surface, what does the text say? Then we'll look at what it means in view of the New Testament. And then we will look at what it is for. What is the purpose of it in the Psalms of Ascent and the purpose for us today? So what the text says, what it means, and what it is for. We'll look at Psalm 132 in that order. Let's begin with what the text says. As I've said already, we are deep in the Psalms of Ascent. It's the 13th of 15 Psalms in the Ascents. And it is structured in two basic parts. In verses 1 to 10, we see the psalmist's prayers. And then in verses 11 to 18, we see the Lord's promises. We see the psalmist's prayers and the Lord's 
promises. Let's first look at what the psalmist is praying about. What is his desire in behalf of God's people? We see first in verse 1, where the psalmist asks God to remember David. The psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. And he says, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So the psalmist is asking God to remember all that David strove to do for God's glory in the temple. The psalmist first reminds the Lord of the hardships that David endured. These hardships include things like all of David's sufferings in becoming the anointed king in the days of Saul. They include all of his battles and sufferings to defend and protect God's people and to establish the city of God in Jerusalem. They include all of the mockings, all the betrayals of his sons that betrayed him, the people that sought his ruin, who bore the name of the people of God. And they also have to do with David's great sacrifices for uh, financial sacrifices for the temple as well as David gave. Uh, it's hard to, hard to say millions or perhaps billions in today's dollars in, of his own resources to Solomon so that Solomon could build the temple. So David gave all that he had for the temple. Um, David lamented that, how can I live in, in a paneled house while the Lord dwells in a tent? For 20 years, the Lord dwelled in a field, the field of Jair. And before that, he wandered with God's people in the desert. And David looks at his comfortable living and he says, look at the Lord's place, the Lord's tent. And he gives his all to build a place for the Lord. We know that David was not allowed to build the temple um, because there was too much blood on his hands. Uh, but God promised that David's son would build him a temple in 1 Samuel 7. But all that to say, the psalmist is saying, Lord, remember all that David did for you. Remember all that David did for you. Now, why is the psalmist asking God to remember? We're going to just put that on pause for a moment. That might be a question in your mind. The second thing that the psalmist says in verse 8, 
is he asks the glory of God to dwell in Jerusalem once more. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And if this, these words were written in the days of Solomon, this would be part of the dedication of the temple and asking that God's spirit would abide in the temple. But if this was written in post-exilic times, we know that in Ezekiel, there's this image of the glory of the Lord departing the temple and going over the Mount of Olives and beyond, which Jesus actually, I'm getting ahead of myself, marvelously fulfills when he comes back over the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. So either this is a prayer of, a prayer of dedication that the Lord would now enter through the Ark of the Covenant and dwell in the temple, or it is a plea that God would return and dwell there once more. We don't, we don't know precisely, but it's the longing for the glory of the Lord to be in the temple either way. Thirdly, the third prayer is for the worship experience of God's people. And they, he prays, let your priests, in verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And the psalmist is, is praying for that experience of righteous priests not, as opposed to wicked ones, which was so often the case in the days of Israel. And for saints who are shouting for joy rather than living in apathy, bearing the name of God, but having no zeal or delight in him. The fourth prayer then, and this brings us back to the first prayer. In verse 10, the psalmist says, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And the psalmist is, is therefore saying, based on all that David did for you, Lord, do not now turn your face away from his heir, his son, whom you promised to bless. These are the, the prayers. This is what the text says in respect to the psalmist's prayers. What that means will flesh out in a moment. But these are the prayers. The psalmist is saying, based on David's actions, Lord, would you now make good on your promises? Would you dwell in your temple and bless and be with our king, your anointed one? The second half of the text then, in terms of what it says, deals with God's promise. And here we see two main promises. In verses 11 to 12, we see a promise about the king. And then verses 13 to 18, the Lord's promise about his dwelling place in Zion. And in verse 11 and 12, the Lord promises by saying, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If you keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your 
throne. And so here we have a conditional promise that's rooted in two important texts. The first text is 1 Samuel 7. And in 1 Samuel, excuse me, not 1 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promises that he will bless David's heir and that he will give him a kingdom, indeed an everlasting kingdom. I'm going to read that to you. I thought I had it in my notes, but I'm failing to find it. So 2 Samuel 7, in verses 12 and following, the Lord makes a covenant with David. And in verse 12, he says when your, to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Second Samuel 7 is the great promise. It's one of the landmarks of the Old Testament that every Jew, every Israelite clung to. God has promised to bless David and his descendants forever. Now the question is, who is the ultimate heir of David? Is it Solomon? Well, we know Solomon himself, even with all of his wisdom, falls into grave apostasy. And so many of David's heirs were thoroughly wicked men. David needed a greater son to fulfill this promise. But in the meantime, this is the promise that the Old Testament people, the pilgrims are clinging to. Lord, don't turn your face away from your anointed one. And God promises, I will not turn my face away from them if they keep my covenant. The second promise that the Lord makes here is his promise to dwell in Zion forever. And we see in verses 13 and following, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for a dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So the question of what the text says, or our question at the beginning, the question the pilgrims were asking is, will God abandon us in this dark hour? And through the psalm, 
we see the answer is emphatically no. God will not abandon his people. He will not abandon his place of worship. And he will not abandon his king. No, never. Okay, so that's what the text says. But now the hard part. What does it mean? Right? The temple lays in ruin today. There's a mosque built on it, in fact. The temple was once again destroyed in in AD 70, and it has not been rebuilt since. And the Jews were kicked out of the land for good. Um, In AD 135, after a failed messianic rebellion, uh, through one named Simon Bar Kokhba, and they were kicked out. There are some Jews in the land now today, but is God? Did God fail in His promises to dwell in Zion forever, or is there a deeper meaning to the text that we don't uh, understand, or we couldn't understand? Should I say, without the help of the New Testament and the fuller revelation of Scripture? So we need to unpack what this text means. First of all, we need to remember that Old Testament texts point to New Testament spiritual realities. To use the language of the New Testament, the Old Old Testament is shadow. And the New Testament is substance. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness to talk about the greater realities in Christ, even calling Christ the rock that fed them water in the wilderness. And he says that these things happened to them as examples for us. And in Colossians 2.17 Uh, Paul will say, these, talking about things of the Old Testament law and covenant, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when we read and interpret the Old Testament, we must do so seeking what it has to say about Jesus and what it has to do with his people in the New Testament often gives us the help that we need. And so we have in Psalm 132 the same kind of shadow, substance, experience. There are two major images that I want to look at and that this text highlights that the New Testament also uh, has a focus upon. And those two major images are these. First, on Jesus as David's heir, and secondly, on the church as the spiritual Zion that God has chosen. And we're going to take some time to unpack these two things. First, let's look at Jesus as the Lord's anointed. The word Christ itself is this Greek word means anointed one. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus, the Lord's anointed. And Jesus is David's anointed heir. 
This psalm points to so many aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry. For example, as we read about Jesus's, or we read about David's sufferings for the temple, we are reminded all the more of the Lord's sufferings for the true temple of God, which is the church, his body. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 2, 6 to 11, when he says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In, in Jesus' work for the true temple of God, Jesus suffered greatly. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was flogged. He was tortured. He was crucified. He was buried. He remained under the power of death for a time. That's what we mean when we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. Jesus, though he was God, suffered all of these things for us. How much greater is Jesus' sacrifice than David's for the true temple? We also see shadows of our Lord's zeal for worship in Psalm 132. Remember when Joseph and Mary with their people went to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast and they return home and they're missing Jesus. And they wondered where he went. And where did they find him? They found him in the temple. And do you remember what Jesus said to his parents? He said, why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' zeal was for the house of the Lord. And Jesus' zeal led him to cleanse the temple and purge it from those that were using it as a place of commerce and gain. And, the, and there it is said of Jesus, the zeal of the Lord consumed him for the work. So we see in Psalm 132, this David's zeal is a shadow of the substance of the Messiah's zeal for the true house of God. How about Jesus's anointing as David's heir? We, we, the psalmist says, do not turn your face away from the anointed one. And what do we hear? We hear in Luke 1 and uh, Luke 2 the fulfillment of these glorious things. For example, uh, in Luke, uh, Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, Gabriel meets Mary, the angel Gabriel. And what does he say? He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. 
right there, we see that Jesus is the one who will inherit the throne of his father, David, and not just for a temporary time. Gabriel goes on to say, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Psalm 132 also speaks of Jesus' messianic ministry of, of healing and feeding and saving and protecting. All those promises we see in, in verses 14 to 15 of being a resting place, of dwelling forever, of giving abundant provisions, of satisfying the poor with bread, of, of clothing his priests with salvation, his saints with joy. Uh, all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the horn that would sprout from David. Jesus is the lamp of the anointed, the light of the world. In Revelation 21 and 22, we realize that there's no temple because the Lamb is the light. The Lamb is the light. And God and the Lamb are the presence of God. There's no longer a need for a temple. And how about this promise that his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. That Jesus has promised to uh, get rid of all of our enemies. And we know because of his sufferings, as we read in Philippians 2, because he emptied himself and took the form of the servant, we are also told in Philippians 2 that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Psalm 132 is just steeped in rich shadowy imagery that finds its substantive fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But what does this text mean for the church? And this is a little more interesting, I think, and a little more maybe less explored uh, as Christians than the idea that Jesus is, the, is David's heir. I think that, that one is pretty intuitive to us. But how about Zion and its relationship to the church. That one is a little uh, more tricky, and I think it is less explored, but I'm hopefully going to do, uh, I'm going to do my best to help you come to a greater understanding of it, even as I work to understand it myself. I believe from my studies and my reflections that the church is the spiritual Mount Zion that God has chosen to dwell on earth. And there's a now and a not yet aspect to this. Because we're also, and I'm going to explain this in a second, because the heavenly Jerusalem is also in heaven and we're waiting for it to descend to earth. But in, a, in an inaugurated now but not yet way, the church is the chosen Mount Zion on earth. And I'll see if I can... Uh, defend that statement here this morning. I will, I will do my best. I'm going to look at it in a biblical New Testament progression. 
First, from the New Testament, we know that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple with a capital T. John 1.14, we are told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt literally means tabernacled among us. So when Jesus took on flesh, he templed, he tabernacled with us. And then later on in, in chapter 2 of John, we also know that when Jesus said, answered the Pharisees, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, referring to Herod's temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But John goes on to say, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of the Old Testament or Herod's temple in the New Testament time was a shadowy, cloudy prefiguring of the temple that would be Jesus's body the place where God chose to dwell in fullness. As John says, and we have seen his fullness, his glory filled with grace and truth. So Jesus is the temple that all the temples before were pointing to. Now secondly, following New Testament theology, we also are told that Christians are the temple that Christians individually are the temple of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, where Paul says, Or do you not know that you, singular, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So Paul says that each Christian, so each one of you individually, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that all the things of the Old Testament were prefiguring the indwelling of God in his people as the real temple, because we are in Jesus, the temple, therefore we too become the temple of God by the Spirit. But more than that, not just individually, the church is God's temple. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you, now plural, our English translations don't distinguish between singular and plural with you, so it's hard to know. But then this time he's speaking you plural. Do you not know that you, the church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So we're making a case for the church as the spiritual Mount Zion and earth. And we've started with Jesus as the temple The New Testament shows us that Christians are the temple. The New Testament shows us that the church is God's temple. And to defend that last point, I want to read one other key text that will help lead us into this uh, this greater kind of explanation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, in case you meet anybody that claims there are two peoples of God today, the the church and the Jews, you can take them to this text. This is a foundational text for understanding the people of God. And in Ephesians 2, Paul is defending the the church that's made up of Jew and Gentile. 
Two peoples now made one. And he says that the two are made one, that Jesus has made new one, new, one new man in the place of two. And then he goes on to explain, therefore, what that means in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, when he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now remember in Psalm 132, what is God's promise for Zion? that he has chosen. His promise is that it will be his resting place forever. Here, the Lord says, I will dwell, for I have desired it. Zion becomes the symbol for God's eternal dwelling place. And related to that imagery is the heavenly Jerusalem, Related to that imagery is the gathering of all of God's people. Zion becomes this grand symbol that subsumes the temple and subsumes the city of God into one great hope for God's people when he would dwell with us. And the New Testament says that he does that in the church. In speaking of the church in Ephesians 3, Paul calls the church the manifold wisdom of God. All of these Old Testament shadows are pointing to this union of God with his people in the church as Zion. And if that is not convincing enough, I want to take you to one last place and then give you a few citations from um, some church fathers and patriarchs that I think we would all respect. We go to Hebrews 12, which is a really, I want to say, maybe perplexing, but also wonderful and awesome and amazing text. But you have come to Mount Zion. The writer of Hebrews is telling the church, you've already come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This word assembly is the word ecclesia, which is the word that we translate church the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And if you're feeling like, I'm not quite getting this, I don't blame you. I think this is a stretch for our minds to grasp. But we have this now, but not yet reality in our Christian life because Jesus' Jesus's coming that's prophesied about in the Old Testament isn't one coming, it's two comings. It's his first coming and his second coming. So we have already received the full spiritual inheritance through Jesus. 
and yet we have not yet fully experienced it in its full consummated substance, and we won't till the Lord returns and ushers in the new creation where we will be raised with sinless bodies, where evil will be gone forever, and we shall dwell in the fullness of joy with our Lord, world without end. Amen. So it's a now and not yet reality, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have already come to Mount Zion. And he uses all of these synonyms to describe it. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and fester gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. In other words, you've come to the church of the firstborn. So all these images of Zion, of the city, of the heavenly Jerusalem, are describing God dwelling with his people. Everything that's promised with God choosing Zion, choosing his people, is fulfilled in Christ and the church. Maybe by way of bringing a little more clarity or at least helping you to think about this more, I want to give you three citations from some, uh, from some old dead guys, as I like to say, old dead saints who we should listen to more often, who, uh, who speak to this point. Uh, and we'll start from the oldest to the, the newest. We'll start with John Chrysostom, who in the early church was called the Golden Tongue. And he says, Now in a spiritual sense, Zion refers to the church. You have approached Mount Zion. Here he's referring to Hebrews 12. Remember, and church of the firstborn. So both of those are references to Hebrews 12. Rightly is the church called a mountain on account of him being firm, solid, and unshakable. You see, just as it is impossible to shake a mountain, so too the church of God. Here's John Calvin. John Calvin says, The church is limited to no one place. Now that the glory of the Lord shines through all the earth, his, and he means through the church there, it shines through all the earth. His rest is where Christ and his members are. That's where the Lord has chosen to rest. It is necessary that we rightly understand what the psalmist says of the everlasting continuance of the temple. The advent of Christ was the time of reformation. And the figures of the former testament, instead of being then proved or rendered vain, were substantiated and received their fulfillment in him. If it be still objected that Mount Zion is here spoken of as the everlasting residence of God, it is sufficient to answer that the whole world became an enlarged Mount Zion upon the advent of Christ. And then lastly, from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, uh, quoting Psalm 132, 14, This is my rest forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. These are the words of Jehovah himself concerning the hill of Zion. But it is clear that he did not intend us to understand them merely in their literal reference to Zion. Because Zion's could not be, where's the rest of my quote? Because Zion could not be a fitting place for his eternal rest. Nor has he made it literal, his rest for, literally his rest forever. For Zion has been trodden down of the Gentiles for all these centuries. I have no doubt that the Lord has in mind the greater Zion, the city 
of the living God. So here he's quoting Hebrews 12. The heavenly Jerusalem, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. The eternal God, looking down from his throne of glory upon all the creatures he has made, selects his church, elect, blood-bought, called, preserved, and sanctified. And he says concerning this church, this is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. So, beloved, when we sing Psalm 132, we are singing of the glories of Christ and his church. And we are singing of all that God has promised, all that he has done, and all that he will do for us, for the sake of Christ, his anointed. So I want to close briefly with then what the text is for. In light of this meditation, I want to give you a few brief Um, things to think about, a few brief exhortations for how this text can help us as Christians today. And I'll give them to you just in list order very quickly. One, Psalm 132 gives us assurance of God's presence among us in the dark days of our pilgrimage gives us assurance that God will be with us and is with us in the dark days of our pilgrimage, even now, even this day, wherever you are, and in the life of our church. Two, Psalm 132 helps us raise our hearts in joyful praise to God in Christ. When we understand the richness of the psalm, it It helps to elevate and lift our hearts in praise to God and Jesus. Number three, Psalm 132 helps to increase our longing for our home in heaven. It helps to increase our longing for our home in heaven when all the promises we read in the psalm are given to us in their fullness. I think Psalm 132 helps to improve our estimation of the privileges and blessings of Christ's church. It gives us just a little more reason to gather on the Lord's Day. Because when we do, we experience the true Mount Zion as the people of God together. It helps to improve our understanding or estimation of what it means to be a church. In number five, Psalm 132, and lastly here, helps to encourage our zeal for God's glory and worship and our sacrificial love for each other in the body of Christ. And I want to conclude with Psalm 132, which I've already referenced, but in in, Philippians 2, excuse me, Philippians 2, which I've already referenced where Jesus, where we are told that Jesus emptied himself, gave up everything for us. Paul in Philippians 2 is using that 
to give us a model for how we should treat one another in the church. So I think Psalm 132 helps encourage our zeal for God's glory and for our love, our sacrificial love for each other and laying our lives down for one another. And Paul says, and we'll close with the words from Philippians 2, where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.